I um, I tell Lisa and our musicians all the time that not only do I want us at this church to preach the gospel, but I want us to sing the gospel as well. And I don't know that we do any song that sings the gospel better than that song. With just one little line, surrender to the good Lord and he'll wipe your slate clean. Let's, um, let's stand to our feet in reverence of God's holy word. Today's text, we're continuing our journey through the book of Romans. And it reads, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. The word of the Lord Praise be to Christ. You can be seated. Paul said at the beginning of today's text, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And today, we consider ourselves champions of faith if we say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. But Paul lived during a time when his preaching earned him, according to 2 Corinthians 11, uh, five times of being lashed, 39 times with a whip, three times beaten with rods, one stoning, three times shipwrecked, one night and a day of drifted sea, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers. In toil and hardship, with many sleepless nights, being hungry and thirsty, and often without food, being cold and exposed to the elements, and with a daily pressure of his own anxiety for all of the churches that he was planting and he was leading. But Paul continued to preach with boldness. And as I studied this text today, and I read about this text in commentaries and books, I realized that there were six specific words that would have empowered Paul in this text. This is a text that is deeply familiar, and we know it by heart. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We've heard that a million times. It's like many other verses that we hear over and over. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Psalm 23 that starts in the first three verses with, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you may not have been able to cite chapter and verse for today's text, but we've all heard it before. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. So as I looked at this text, I considered six words that I thought would have compelled Paul to, uh, to this level of being not ashamed, to this level of placing himself in danger for the sake of the gospel. Risking and eventually even giving his own life 
for the sake of the gospel. So today we're going to look at these words. Word number one is gospel. Two, power. Three, salvation. Four, believe. Five, righteousness. And six, faith. And we're going to look at these words with a fine-tooth comb. Because if you understand the meaning of these words and see how Paul ties them together, you can understand Paul's motivation for preaching so boldly. And you can understand the gospel. The first word is gospel. In the Greek, it's euangelion. It means good news. And Paul begins his text today by saying, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The book of Romans is supremely concerned with the gospel. So I think we have to consider the question, what is the gospel? Is this news really that good that Paul would write so passionately about it and eventually give his life for it? A.W. Tozier described the gospel in his book, and he dwelt among us with these words. He said, Jesus Christ came not to condemn you, but to save you. Knowing your name, knowing all about you, knowing your weight right now, knowing your age, knowing what you do, knowing where you live, knowing what you ate for supper and what you will eat for breakfast, where you will sleep tonight, how much your clothing cost, who your parents were. He knows you individually as though there were not another person in the entire world. He died for you as certainly as if you had been the only lost one. He knows the worst about you, and he is the one who loves you the most. R.C. Sproul, another great theologian, framed it like this. He said, God just doesn't throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea and pulls a corpse from the bottom of the sea, takes him up to the bank, and breathes into him the breath of life and makes him alive. Tozer and Sproul were brilliant theologians. I am not. So I have to consider the gospel in terms that someone with a limited intellect like mine can understand. So my cornbread definition of the gospel is this. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sins so that we can enjoy God forever. The good news, this gospel though is more than just an idea. The gospel is also a person. The good news, the best news that we'll ever hear is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Paul goes on to describe the gospel as the power of God, and he uses a Greek word, dunamis. And he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The Greek word there is a word that we derive words like dynamic or dynamo or dynamite from. And this particular word is used 119 times in 115 different verses in the New Testament, making the idea of power a central theme in the New Testament. And the word power can be used in different ways. I can watch the Atlanta Braves and I can see a 6'5", 275-pound first baseman and say, he has tons of power. But if he never makes contact with the ball, all that power is meaningless. I can talk about my brother's 1974 Torino that he had restored. And I can boast about the 429 Cobra jet engine with the supercharger that he had put in it. But if he never steps on the gas, 
What good is all that power? This isn't a stagnant or a docile power that Paul is talking about. It's more than having the capability to hit a ball 400 feet. It's more than having the potential to top 180 miles per hour. This is power in action, power that is effective towards an end. So what does this power do? Paul said that it leads to salvation, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Our next word on the list, the Greek word for salvation means deliverance. A while back, I checked, and there were more than 861,000 self-help books for sale on Amazon. And a lot of those books are in the Christian category, but some of them really need an asterisk by the word Christian. There's titles like, Girl, Wash Your Face, Stop Believing the Lies About Who You Are So You Can Become Who You Were Meant to Be. There's Eat, Live, Thrive, Diet in the Christian book category. Own Your Every Day. Ask and it is given. Learning to manifest your desires. The power of positive thinking. We've all uh, heard of that one. Norman Vincent Peale. A lot of us grew up with that one sitting on the back of our toilet, didn't we? Because we would read a little bit at a time. Seven steps to an exceptional you. Drop the rock. Removing your character defects. The trim healthy mama plan. In Christian self-help books. Think, learn, succeed. Now some of these books I'm sure are not terrible. But some of them are really just behavior modification manuals with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on them to make them palatable and sellable to Christians. The real religious stance is what's called moralistic therapeutic deism, which basically is big theological phrase that means I'll make you feel better about yourself by helping you change the rules you live by and I'll talk about God a little bit as I do it. The problem is a lot of these books are man-centered and not Jesus-centered. All of them point to one idea. People want to be different than what they are. People want to be delivered from one state of being into another. The problem is this, is that we might be able to change our physical appearance. We might be able to change our financial situation. We might be able to make more money and deal with life better. But the bottom line is no one is capable of changing who they are on the inside on their own. Jeremiah 13.23 drives the point home. When he asks a question, can a leopard change his spots? And the answer is emphatically no. We might be able to make superficial changes by dropping some weight, but that doesn't change our heart. Our problem is we can change ourselves externally and we can change ourselves temporarily, but we don't have the power to change ourselves internally. And we don't have the power to change ourselves eternally. Only God can change us from the inside out. And some of those books offer advice that is okay and it's not sinful. But ultimately, all they offer is a new set of rules to live by, a new law to hopefully deliver us from one state of being to a new state of being. Our issue here is we have an innate ability and a history of failing to follow the law. The power of the gospel is that Christ fulfills 
fulfilled the law for us and kept every rule we couldn't keep so that we could have a brand new life and a brighter hope for eternity. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The gospel does what we are unable to do for ourselves. Man is sinful. Man can't sit, fix that problem no matter how hard he tries. But the active and living power of the gospel, the dunamis power that not only makes us new on the inside, it brings dead men to life, is the ultimate power. Paul wrote that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God to deliver us from what we are to what we can be. It's the power of God to erase our sins and our shortcomings and the skeletons in our closet and to wipe our slates clean. Because, and then we no longer have to fear God, but we can enjoy God. The power of the gospel delivers us from sin, from Satan, from judgment, from death, and from hell. When Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's teaching us that the power of the gospel, the saving power of Jesus, transcends all human distinctions, all the differences that has set us apart, race, ethnicity, citizenship status, political party affiliation, rich or poor, fat or skinny, short or tall. No matter where you've been or what you've done, there's no level of moral failure or depth of depravity that can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Salvation is available to every one of us. Every one of us has what Augustine called a God-shaped vacuum inside of themselves, and it will be filled with something because nature hates a vacuum. So we fill it with politics and sexual identity and obsessing about our physical appearance and food and drink and sports and addiction and any possible form of distraction in hope that something or anything will make us feel differently than the way we feel right now. And this need, this longing inside of us leads us to cheat on our spouses and abuse drugs and binge watch television and constantly look for likes on social media. We have this unquenchable thirst inside and we think that getting a different job or more money or a nicer vehicle or a bigger house and a different zip code will make it all better. But only Jesus can deliver us. Only Jesus can change us from this state of longing to a state of eternal content. John 6.35 says, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The gospel saves us from our sins and satisfies our deepest longings and delivers us from a state of death into a state of new living. So who is this good news, this gospel for? The next word tells us, believe. 
Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Greek word there means adherence to or committal to, faith in, reliance upon, or trust in a person or an object. The good news of the gospel, the power of God is for those who believe. Here's another cornbread definition for you. To believe in this context means more than just an intellectual assent. It means to believe into the gospel, to completely surrender to the person of Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to sit in church every Sunday and hear the gospel. You have to respond to the gospel. You have to believe into the gospel. I've told the story before about a French tightrope walker named Charles Blondin, who in the 1800s became a worldwide sensation because of his feats of daring. And none of his work drew more attention than when he became became the first man to walk on a tightrope with no safety net across Niagara Falls. And he did this day after day, and thousands of people began to gather to see it. And he added tricks to the show. He carried his manager on his back on one trip across. And on another, he strapped a little wood stove onto his back with some sticks of firewood. And he walked halfway across, and he balanced the stove on the tightrope and fried an egg and sat down and ate it in the middle of Niagara Falls. And then he put everything on his back and he walked the rest of the way across. Now you have to remember, this is pre-television and pre-ESPN. So this is on the front page of every newspaper all over the world. So one day he puts his manager in a wheelbarrow. And he walks across the falls, pushing his manager. And he gets to the other side and the crowd is going wild. And the manager steps out of the wheelbarrow when he reaches safety And he says, do you believe that the great Blondine can push a man across Niagara Falls in a wheelbarrow? And the crowd exploded and they said, yes, we believe, we believe. And the manager says, can I get a volunteer from the audience to ride back across? There are crickets. People believed he could do it. They even saw him do it. But they didn't believe into the idea. They weren't willing to surrender to the idea. They weren't willing to respond to the call. In terms of the gospel, every one of us is sick with sin. And all of us, no matter how good our church attendance is, no matter how many years we've been a member of the church, no matter how often you've helped the poor, no matter how well you follow the rules, no matter how good your morals are, Or how much better you think you might be than the person sitting next to you. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us measure up to God's standards for holiness. Because every one of us is a sinner. The good news of the gospel though is that God is filled with dunamis power. The power to do the unimaginable and the miraculous. In Matthew 28.18 Jesus said... All authority, all power is given unto me. And Jesus demonstrated this power by healing sicknesses and taking a few fish and a couple of loaves of bread and multiplying it and feeding thousands of people with it. He demonstrated this power by calming storms and he even raised Lazarus from the dead. But all of these miracles 
were temporary miracles. The sick people that Jesus healed, undoubtedly at some point in life, they got sick again. And the hungry people that Jesus fed, by the time morning rolled around, their bellies were growling and they were ready for breakfast. And Lazarus, poor Lazarus, he had a terrible illness and he died and he laid in the grave until his body was rotten and stinking. And eventually he comes back to life though when Jesus calls him out of the grave. But then he had to go through the process of death all over again. The greatest expression of Jesus' power is not in miracles, but it's in his ability to change our eternal disposition. He died on the cross and he rose from the grave with dunamis power so that we could experience life that never ends and enjoy God forever, even us sinners. But, but I should even say even us sinners. Because the gospel is specifically for us sinners. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Salvation doesn't come by following all the rules or by having some level of perceived goodness. Salvation comes because a man or a woman recognizes that there's no goodness in them and they can't save themselves. Salvation comes when they understand that only Jesus Christ can save them by believing into the idea that Jesus is the Son of God and He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins and He is the only way to heaven and then they surrender their lives completely to Him. Our next word is righteousness. Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The word righteousness here, the Greek word, translates into a perfect obedience to the law that gains one divine approval or judicial approval. Throughout life, we're constantly put into scenarios where we have to prove ourselves. If we want to play middle school or high school baseball, you have to try out for the team. You have to demonstrate that you have certain skills that you can hit, you can run, you can throw at a level that justifies you being on the team. If you want to go to college, you have to present the right qualifications. You have to show your grades on your high school transcripts, your scores on standardized tests and your performance records to justify your acceptance into a university or college. If you want a job, you have to show your prospective employer resume with a list of your work experience in the field and your education and your qualifications to justify you being hired. Life is a constant cycle of seeking validation so that we can be accepted and approved. We're constantly in search of a verdict. So what is required to be accepted or approved by God? One thing. Complete perfection. Following the law without any exception, without any slips, without any mistakes, 
without any moral shortcomings. Complete and perfect holiness is what is required to be in good with God. And that's not easy. Rich Mullins wrote a song called Hard, and in it he said, Well, I'm a good Midwestern boy. I give an honest day's work if I can get it. I don't cheat on my taxes, and I don't cheat on my girl. I've got values that would make the White House jealous. But Lord, it's hard to turn the other cheek. It's hard to bless when others curse you. Lord, it's hard to be a man of peace. Lord, it's hard. It's so hard. You know, it's hard to be like Jesus. And the fact is, it's not just hard, but it's impossible to be like Jesus. To be righteous in the ancient world meant to receive a judicial verdict of not guilty and innocent of all charges. And we need perfect righteousness to be acceptable to God. And that's something we just don't have. We don't have that validating performance record that is required to be in good with God. And God is not a deal maker. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And he had a famous line that he used to preach. He said, if God demanded a certain degree of intelligence, it would be unfair to morons. If he demanded wealth, it would be unfair to paupers. If God demanded less than perfection from us, that wouldn't be fair to any of us. If Neil over here lived a life that was 70% good, and Ricky back there lived a life that was 74% good, but Ricky's 26% bad involved behaviors that might have been worse than Neil's 30% good, then God wouldn't be able to accept either one of them. God will not accept that you are a good person for 70% of your life. He won't be satisfied with 80% of your life or even 90 or 95%, 99% perfection. 99% perfection is 100% imperfection. Barnhouse was right about one thing. God is not fair. He is not fair. But he is righteous. And he is just. Our sins deserve punishment he is a holy God and he will not barter with us on the performance record required to enter heaven the only validating performance record that puts us in right relationship with God is a life of 100% complete perfection we need righteousness to be acceptable to God and we don't have it What we have is sin. So God has what we need and what we don't deserve, righteousness. And we have what God hates and he rejects, sin. So what is God's answer to the problem? Jesus. So there's a truth you have to believe You have to believe into the idea that Jesus is the only way to be saved from your sins. And there's a verdict you have to receive. And the verdict is not guilty by virtue of the blood of Christ. Not guilty by faith alone and not by your works. 
Jesus offers us forgiveness for our sins and a bonus. He offers us forgiveness plus. Not only do we receive a verdict of not guilty by believing that Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross, but we receive a declaration of completely innocent as a gift from God. We get negative works removed and positive works applied. Martin Luther called it alien righteousness, righteousness that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. It opens doors for us. It opens the door to God. Uh, this gift, we sang about it earlier this morning. It quoted 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There's that alien righteousness, that righteousness that doesn't come from following the rules and being a good person, but through the blood of Jesus. So regardless of your track record, regardless of your spiritual resume, Christ on the cross gives you that validating performance record, that access to God that you can't gain on your own. And the last word that I believe compelled Paul so much to preach the gospel is faith. A gift from God that gives us the confidence to trust in God. The text reads, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul comes to the end of today's text with a scripture quoted from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith corresponds with what we talked about earlier, belief. In order to be saved, in order to be made righteous through the blood of Christ, we must believe into the idea that we can't gain access to God just by following the rules or just by being a good person. We have to trust that the punishment that Jesus took on the cross is enough to cover all of our sins yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We have to stop trusting ourselves. We have to stop believing that if we're good enough, God will love us. But if we're bad, He is an angry judge that will throw lightning bolts at us and give us cancer and flat tires. The gods of other religious systems are gods that demand good behavior in order to be in good with God. But in Christianity, it's this amazing paradox. You have to admit that you lack holiness in order to receive the holiness that you need. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He never ever said, Blessed are those who are righteous and who are always good and always follow every rule to a T. And he never said, Blessed are those who occasionally mess up in sin, but they pay the price for their sins by praying enough Hail Marys and doing enough good works to make up for their bad works. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who want righteousness. 
but understand that they don't have righteousness without Jesus. Blessed are those who are sinners and understand they need a Savior. Jesus is saying, I didn't take on flesh and die on the cross for the super spiritual, for the smartest and best looking and most popular people. I didn't die on the cross for self-righteous religious snobs who look down their noses at people they perceive to be real sinners and say, thank God I'm not like them. In the words of Brennan Manning, Jesus came for the bedraggled, the beat up, and the burnt out. For the sorely burdened who are still shifting from the heavy suitcase of bad history from one hand to another. For the wobbly and weak need who know they don't have it all together. For the inconsistent, unsteady disciples whose cheese is always falling off their cracker. For the weak, poor, sinful men and women with hereditary faults and limited talents. For the bent and bruised who feel that their lives are a grave disappointment to God. For me and people like me who have grown weary and discouraged along the way. Jesus said in Matthew nine twelve and 13, It's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. Go and learn the meaning of the words, Mercy is what pleases me, not sacrifice. I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. Jesus' plea to sinners like you and me is never come join the church. It's never come be baptized or come give money. He says, is anybody thirsty? Come to me. You'll be filled with me. If you're hungry, come and eat the bread of life. If you're just tired of it all, come and find rest. If you're guilty, come and be forgiven. If you're far from God, come back home. If you feel like something is missing inside of you, it's Jesus. Ephesians 2 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were natural objects of God's wrath. But God... Because of his great love for us, because he is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead in our sins. It is by grace we have been saved. Paul Gustafson summed this up this way. Roy Gustafson. Religion is the story of what a sinful man tries to do for a holy God. The gospel is a story of what a holy God has done for a sinful man.
Let's stand to our feet and we're going to sing one last song celebrating the gospel. If you need prayer this morning, I'll be here. If you want to pray for someone else, come. If you need Jesus, come.